0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello there and welcome to Between the Lines. This is Tom Switzer and it's always good to have your company. Now, today on the show, Singapore has been held up as a role model for dealing with COVID-19. Coming up, I'll be chatting with an Australian who's been on the front lines of the island state's response. Plus, max hastings on his new book which shows the best of british the daring low-level air raid of an allied squadron in the spring of 1943 stay with us for that Well this week we've seen new restrictions on physical distancing from the government in Canberra and some very strict new laws and fines in some states for gatherings of more than two people. But in the city-state of Singapore things are going on with a little bit more normalcy and importantly schools are still open and attendance is high. So what's going on with Singapore and what can we learn from its approach? Dale Fisher As you'll hear, he's one of us, he's an Australian. He started his career as an infectious disease specialist in Darwin and he's now the Chair of Infection Control at the National University Hospital in Singapore. Now, Dale's been playing a leading role in Singapore's response to the virus, both behind the scenes and as the face of Singapore's public messaging campaign on COVID-19. Dale, welcome to Between the Lines.
0: Hi, Tom. Good to be here.
1: Now, Dale, uh, Singapore's response, like that of Taiwan, It was informed by the 2003 SARS outbreak, which killed two people in Singapore and a total of 774 people globally, a number which seems very low uh, now compared to COVID-19. What measures did Singapore put in place after SARS?
0: So after SARS, Tom, there was, it was obviously a bit of a a wake-up call that, uh, you know, emerging viruses occur. There was no sort of uh, acceptance that that this was allowed to happen again if you like where we'd be be caught off guard so there was a lot of infrastructure created sort of in the in the subsequent decade with new hospitals including a a national infectious diseases center uh, a lot of uh, planning a lot of even the legislation i think some countries are still debating over the laws on isolation and quarantine but but our id act has 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 been in place for some time now
1: okay now one of the key things singapore did early on was that it isolated people with even mild cases of the virus coronavirus where they were isolated, what kind of monitoring system was put in place
0: for positive cases? Th- they're all admitted. Uh, I, I like to reference Willie Sutton. Uh, he's a he was a bank robber. He's the one famous for for saying, you know, why do you rob banks? And his answer was, because that's where the money is. <laughs> and why do you isolate patients with the virus? Because that's where the virus is, you know, the positive cases. So, so, so even
1: we, people who have absolutely no symptoms.
0: Well, we don't. So, so the short answer is yes, but we don't actually swab asymptomatic people. Of course, it happens sometimes, uh, particularly in family clusters. But this isolation of cases is a, a key characteristic of of the five countries at the moment that have got uh, that have got good control, or you know, that, that have got some control. Yeah, sure. Um, which is Taiwan, South Korea, Hong Kong, China, uh, Singapore.
1: Yes. Well, here in Australia, um, Dale, the Prime Minister is among others who cited uh, Singapore as an example of a country that's controlled the spread of the virus while keeping schools open. What measures were put in place in schools to keep schools open? Well, firstly, can I just say it
0: it really should be seen as a a bundle of activities, Mm. Um, you, you know, people often say to me you know what what is Singapore doing that's different and I say you know it's everything it's the isolation of the cases it's the it's the thorough contact tracing it's the quarantining and the serious quarantining with with serious penalties of uh, of of close contacts and and the school you know the social distancing you Mm. know there's a whole raft of
1: measures presumably temperature checks on entry that sort of thing
0: well if you want to take it to schools yeah definitely they're having uh, having regular temperature checks there's hand hygiene there's uh, there's you know sp- spacing of the desks and there's there's dedicated desks so it's not kids can't sit in a different desk every time they've got their own so so there's you know c- quite a few things put in place but it's really under the the premise that we want life to go on as as normally as possible and children you know except under very rare circumstances don't get don't get severely unwell.
1: Yeah, well, as um, a father of two young daughters, I wish our schools were still open because teaching at home while working—I have to say—it is tough work, Dale. <laughs> I didn't realise well, how hard it was with homeschooling.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, there's obviously flow-on effects of uh, uh, of closing schools, but um, I'm actually quite. Pleased personally that that schools are staying open because mm.
1: because this has got to be got to be for a long time. So absolutely. Now you're in a pretty unique position of knowing both Singapore and Australia's health system very well. Do you think the Singapore approach would work here?
0: I, I don't think it would have originally, uh, but I think when people get a taste of of what sort of severe restrictions can can come as a result, then. You know, I think there, there is more appetite now for, for isolation and quarantine.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, you've got Italy, Spain, uh, the US, to some extent, I suppose, New Zealand, they're locking down. Some countries are taking quite different approaches. What do you make of the so-called herd immunity approach? It's been advocated in the Netherlands and to some extent in Sweden. What do you make of that?
0: I certainly don't buy into it. The The maths just, to me, doesn't make sense. So so firstly, if it's only clinical cases that develop immunity, then definitely not. Now, if we find there's a lot of asymptomatic spread, then there is a small chance, but we certainly don't know that. So you can't adopt herd immunity now. If if it's only clinical cases are, are getting immunity or, or not many more, you know the maths is that in a country like Australia with twenty five million, then you need fifteen million people to be uh, to to get the disease. You know I- anyone over thirty can can get sick from this. it It's just about the percentage. So you know even if like point one percent of forty to fifty year olds can can get critically unwell, multiply that by millions of people you know it's uh and that's what they're seeing in italy you know that even if you decide okay we're not going to ventilate the elderly because we're out of ventilators they're looking around their people in this and new york saying the same look i'm seeing 30 40 50 year olds you can't just let this virus run free because as i say even if it's 0.1 death rate for a 50 year old you know, if, how many 50-year-olds have we got? And to get herd immunity, 60% of them have to get infected. You're still going to have hundreds of thousands of people. So it's not about just locking away the elderly and let it run free. There'll still be a lot of sickness in younger people and,
1: and deaths. Finally, just back to Singapore, uh, despite the measures we've been discussing, its infection rate has risen a bit in the past week or so, I think. Does that signal the need for tougher action? I mean, what's the next step for Singapore?
0: So, there's, there's always a bit of a lag, um, and it was only, I'm losing track of time now, but it was it was only about a week or two ago that uh, Singapore uh, brought in much more severe border restrictions. Um, yeah, but, and,
1: but restaurants and malls, they're still open though, right?
0: They are. It was about a week ago that the the bars and nightclubs and discos got closed down because, you know, they they trade on people being in crowds. Our our numbers mostly reflect imported cases, but Mm. we're still getting clusters. And even just in the last day or two, Singapore has, has, you know, made it sort of an offence if – if companies don't do their best to help people telecommute. Everyone in the community needs to do their bit and the government is still pushing for for more social interventions while at the same time we we keep shutting down transmission chains. I I still think it's in relative control, but um, we have to really keep working hard to keep the place open but it's but it's doable i think
1: dale what would you do if you were in charge of the australian response it's it's difficult
0: in australia there are you know having several layers of of government already uh makes sort of messaging and communications and and rolling out of efforts you know more difficult so so I, i do have have sympathies in that respect. Uh, And I think most would say Australia, like most of the world was taken somewhat by surprise and we can't have January and February back, but perhaps there could have been more done then. I think if you ask me for one thing that Australia would do that it's not doing now, it's to isolate the cases. Uh, I know it's, I know it's complicated. It's the States that have to do it. And I know it's a big country, there's cities and towns and, uh, and complexities like that. But I really just think if, if, If we can now isolate high risk people coming back from from overseas, can't we isolate the cases? They're the ones that actually have the virus and self-quarantining is very, very difficult to comply with, especially when you don't feel too bad. But we know those people are the most contagious.
1: So when you say isolate, you mean round them up and put them in the hospitals?
0: You could even start it going forward. You could say, look, from now on, every new case Has to be admitted. We're going to have community-based isolation facilities, and these can be empty hotels or transformed, uh, you know, other facilities. China, even Wuhan did not let its people, uh, its positive cases stay home. Those two big hospitals that were built in 10 days, they were for the mild cases. They weren't fully functioning hospitals. They, they were more community isolation facilities. Uh, Korea did the same thing. They created 4,000 isolation beds. But yeah, that that's the big difference. Not go home, stay in an isolation facility until your throat swab's clear.
1: Dale, thanks so much for being on ABC Radio today. Thanks, Tom. Dale Fisher, he's the Chair of Infection Control at the National University Hospital in Singapore.
2: This is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer.
1: Well, we all know that people in their 70s and older are the most vulnerable to coronavirus, but it's the young, tomorrow's taxpayers who will pay its fearsome economic price. Writing in the London Times recently, The distinguished British journalist, Max Hastings, himself 74 years of age, this is what he observed, quote, We the old should recognise that our first responsibility is to do everything in our power to avoid becoming literally a dead weight upon the health system. According to Sir Max, if the price is that we oldies remain isolated for a period, even after the rest of society resumes socialising, so be it. So Max Hastings is a former editor of the UK Daily Telegraph and Evening Standard. He's written many influential and best-selling military history books. And you may recall our last segment together, that was in late 2018. That was on Max Hastings' previous book, Vietnam, an epic tragedy. John Howard, the former Prime Minister, recently told me that this book was his favourite The favourite book he read last year, that's John Howard on Max Hastings' Vietnam. Now, Max Hastings' most recent book is called Chastise, The Dam Busters. That's the Dam Busters story, 1943. Max, great to speak with you
2: again. And you, Tom, always a pleasure.
1: Now, before we address your latest book, Max, let's talk briefly about coronavirus. Now, in your London Times column, you wrote, Should we oldies die, we deserve fewer tears than do those who come after us. Tell us more.
2: We've been a fantastically privileged generation. We've had it all. We haven't had to fight in a war. Um, We've had the best of everything on the planet, and we've done our bit towards screwing up the planet. And I've been worrying for quite a while, long before this started, about what's going to happen to our children, who are going to inherit a huge burden of debt, whereas um, we've ended up as um, the richest generation in history. I won't say they're in danger of being the poorest, but I passionately believe that at this stage... If we die after 70, we've had fantastic lives, most of us. Of course, we don't want to die. But what matters most at this minute is the future of the next generation. And it worries me at the moment, governments have got no choice but to pursue the lockdown policies uh, that are being enforced almost all over the world. But very soon, we've got to start thinking about how... We get economies moving again if we're going to avoid bankrupting our children and grandchildren. And if that means that you've got to say, right, the less vulnerable go back to work and the more vulnerable stay at home, then I think so be it.
1: So let's get your argument right here, Max. You're saying that our governments, and this can be said about Britain, uh, the US, Australia, among others, they've decided to put the lives of largely elderly and the vulnerable people before economic health Um See, a lot of our listeners would say, isn't that the right thing, the the moral thing to do?
2: They have, they have absolutely no choice. But one, we talk about the moral thing to do. I'm not persuaded that it's moral um, to bankrupt our respective countries. I think we have to think government is about making choices. Now, we've been part of our privilege is we've been really spared making very hard choices, such as our grandparents had to make in world wars, uh, such as many past generations have had to go through. We have been a fantastically spoilt societies where we've been able to indulge the compassion culture. Well now I'm afraid we're into very very tough choices and we're going to see some of those choices I'm afraid in in coming weeks and months about deciding who lives and who dies in hospitals, certainly in Europe and perhaps in Australia too. And it's very tough being a leader and being a politician at a time when these very tough choices have got to be made. But I think part of being a grown-up society is to try and help our leaders by trying to help people to understand that very hard choices may have to be made. But we have to get some sort of economic movement going again as soon as we possibly can, um, unless we're going to avoid trashing our economies for maybe a generation. It's
1: that bad. Yeah. So you're recommending essentially the so-called herd immunity agenda. Your critics have come out. I, I, I saw a letter to the editor in The Times in response to your column. He was a, a self-isolated 80-year-old reader, and he found your article depressing and slightly offensive. These are his words, quote, As a father and grandfather of a closely knit family, of course I realise that my descendants are the people whose plight matters, but they believe that a life is as meaningful to an 80-year-old as an 18 year old. This letter writer went on to say, they do not consider me as privileged and selfish, Max Hastings, and they are doing everything within their power to ensure that I do not become a dead weight to them or the overburdened health system. Now, that's a letter to the editor of The Times in response to your column, Max Hastings.
2: That was the sort of letter that I'm talking about as far as the attitude of our generation. I'm afraid, to put it brutally, our lives, and I, he's 80, I'm 74, it's all the same thing. If we die in this, which I hope to God he won't and I hope to God I won't, um, in this ghastly um, pandemic, um, the fact remains we've had fantastically lives. Um It's what happens to those who come afterwards that is is critically important. I do not believe you can say the life of a 74-year-old or an 80-year-old is as important as the lives of the next generation.
1: So what what kind of uh, restrictions do you advocate?
2: I think in a month or two, if we get to a point where our health services have been able to avert collapse, I can see a situation coming about where the less vulnerable and people who've had this ghastly virus get back to work, get the economy moving again, while a good many of us have to stay locked up. And if that's the way it's got to be, that's the way it's got to be.
1: Okay, final question before we move on to your book. Boris Johnson, of course, who worked for you at The Telegraph. Many say that you, Max Max Hastings, helped Boris Johnson make his mark in journalism before he pursued a political (laughs) career. I mean, that's a widespread view. I mean, he originally, Boris originally floated the idea of the herd immunity. He ran away from that. How do you think he's led Britain during the crisis so far?
2: I think it would be terribly unfair to judge him at this moment. Mm. I took a vow when Boris became Prime Minister that we forget about some of the hard things I'd said about him in the past that um, it's a blank sheet of paper. He is prime minister. He's our national leader. And at the moment, I'd be very unwilling when the choices for all governments are fantastically difficult to say anything that um, might weaken trust. We have to try and maintain trust in our leaders in very, very difficult circumstances through this situation, because I think democracy is going to come under enormous pressure in the coming months and years. Mm. And, Part of being so spoiled is we felt able to behave irresponsibly. We've got to start behaving like grown ups, and it's going to be tough.
1: Indeed. Well, let's cheer ourselves up and uh, change the subject from coronavirus to World War II, (laughs) if that's possible. (laughs) And for those of you who have just tuned in, my guest is Max Hastings. He's author of Chastise, The Dam Buster's Story, 1943. It's published by HarperCollins. It's already sold nearly more than 10,000 copies just in Australia, and it's received rave reviews, both The Wall Street Journal and The New York Times. Max, tell us briefly about the daring a low-level air raid by Guy Gibson's 617 Squadron's assaults. This was on Nazi Germany's dams in the spring of 1943.
2: In 1938, the RAF um, identified Germany's dams, which um, uh, the reservoirs for which provided the water for rural industry as vital industrial objectives. But for a long time after that, they couldn't figure out any way of attacking those dams because... You'd need enormous bombs which no aircraft could carry. Well, then in 1942, this amazing boffin scientist, Aunt Barnes-Wallace, lovely man whom I had the good fortune to meet, came up with this brilliant idea for this bouncing bomb, so-called, which the new avro lancaster bomber was able to carry. And Sir Charles Portal, the head of the Air Force, against the wishes of the famous or notorious Bomber Harris, the head of Bomber Command, ordered a squadron to be formed to carry these bombs to uh, try and break the dams. And Guy Gibson, who was already at the age of 24, one of the RAF's most distinguished pilots, formed this squadron, and they weren't all men; Some of them were the brightest and best, including Mickey Martin, the um, great Australian low flyer, whom I also had the good luck to interview when I wrote my book, Bomber Command, a long time ago. And, but some of them were people who would only up flown a handful of operations. And these guys, first of all, they were told they got a train to drop these bombs um, at night over these reservoirs at 150 feet. And then halfway through preparations for the raid, the Barnes-Wallace suddenly went to Gibson and he said, I'm terribly sorry, he said, I worked it out that if we drop them at that height, and at the speed of 220 miles an hour, they're going to go on shattering. We've got to drop them at 60 feet. Well, that's less than the length of a cricket pitch up in the sky. And these guys, some of them not very experienced, not all of them, Mickey Martin, the sort of flying genius, uh, they joined this extraordinary operation to the dams. Um, They had a hell of a time getting to the dams because uh, they had to fly very low across Germany to get there. And half a dozen of them were shot down or flew into power cables on their way to the dams. But then when they got there, one by one, um, because they circle the reservoirs while each one in turn goes in, they fly straight and level at 60 feet, Mm. first to the Mona Dam and then to the Ada to drop these bombs. And miraculously, they did manage to breach the Mona Dam, Mm. And they did manage to breach the Ada Dam, although, to tell the truth, that didn't have much to do with the rural water system, it had anything to do with the rural water system. The great tragedy, so often the case in wars, was that it had, breaking the dams, it unleashed a biblical catastrophe, this incredible flood. But it didn't have much effect on the rural water system because one of the most important dams survived, the Sorpe, and it did, unleashed this torrent which Mm. killed about 1500 people including most of them were um polish and russian women slave laborers who were held in a camp um only a mile or two below the mona so what you've got in this extraordinary story first of all you've got the great story of this wonderful boffin barnes wallace who created the the um, the, the so the the dam busting bomb Mm. and then you've got guy gibson and these young men, and I never stopped being moved at the age I've got to by <laughs> how incredibly young they were. Yeah, Mid 20s, right? Mid 20s? Yeah, if that. I mean, some of them mm. 1920. Mm. I mean, but Gibson was about 24, I think. With, with, he wasn't 21 until after the raid. Mm. Um, and these guys, um, they were great. We now live in an age where authority is always being challenged. What's sort of wonderful about um, those kids, and they were kids, is that when they were told that this was being asked of them for their country's sake and for the cause of the war effort, and they were absolutely bloody terrified when they did it, Um, most of them, and certainly Gibson always said he was absolutely petrified. But they were told this is what needed doing to help the war effort, and they went out there and they did it. Yes, now you mentioned Gibson.
1: Yeah, he's really the star of the show in many respects. He's one of the most famous British pilots of World War II, and I think it's clear from reading your book, Max, he he clearly suffered from what today would be termed uh, post traumatic stress disorder. You're clearly in awe of these men um, who, and we're just talking about flying into northwestern Germany on Operation Chastise. Um, but was the raid the massive war-altering move it was expected to be?
2: No, not many things are. That if ever you see a, a, a book on the shelves with a title that says "the story that changed World War II," chuck it in the dustbin <laughs> because um, there's no such. There ain't no such animal. Um, the tragedy, or part of the tragedy, was that these young men sacrificed so much because what was it? I think fifty-three. Um, uh, out of a 100 and something who went out didn't come back and the tragedy is that very often in war the great acts of heroism and the great acts of sacrifice don't deliver the results that uh, but it did give the German war machine a hell of a shock I think it was narrowly worth it in the cold accountancy of global war Mm -hmm. that um, Goebbels and even Hitler were appalled that The RAF was capable of delivering such a blow. And the Luftwaffe, the Luftwaffe's chiefs, they wrote in their memorandums, they were amazed by the technology and by what these guys achieved. Now, it was a one-off. Everybody said afterwards, why did they never use Barnes-Wallace's bombs again? Well, you can't more than once ask anybody to uh, fly 60 feet at night over a reservoir to drop these bombs. Once the Germans understood the way it all worked, they made jolly sure that none of their dams were vulnerable again. In fact, I remember I interviewed... Uh, bomber Harris, um, again mm. a long time ago now, gosh, um, um, fifty years ago. Um, and, and he or, was the
1: commander in chief of the RAF bomber. Command. He was the commander
2: in chief yep. of a bomber command. And um, I asked him why they never attacked the dams again. He said, "Any operation deserving of a Victoria Cross is, by its nature, unfit to be repeated." And he was right.
1: <laughs> okay. Well, let's uh, let's talk about. Um, the, the spirit of World War II, the spirit of sacrifice and community, national spirit. Um, w- would you connect that with your views on the on the coronavirus? Because
2: no, I think one's got to be very careful about comparing. It was a different time. It's a different spirit. The, the one thing that it does have in common is uh, I don't think one should ever overstate wartime unity, both mm. in Britain and, dare I say it, in Australia. There were deep divisions, political divisions in World War Two, about all sorts of things and by let's say by 1942 um, in Britain um, the competence in Churchill, dare we say it, um, had fallen pretty low because he presided over so many defeats so first of all we shouldn't idealise the wartime spirit and secondly we should realise this is a different time. What I do think is important, which I was talking about a little earlier, is that we have been incredibly, we've lived an inc- incredibly spoilt existence for so long, where we've been spared having to make tough choices. Mm. And now we are finding ourselves paced with making tough choices, and we've got to help each other to do it. And partly also, we must keep questioning um, our leaders and politicians. We mustn't give them a free pass. But on the other hand, Um, we've got to try and help them um, with making responsible decisions and it it may not be possible all the time to show absolute compassion to absolutely everybody because there are some very tough choices coming up so um there is there are some of the virtues that that came out of the war that that we're going to need again but we shouldn't compare it and do remember those poor kids of that generation Mm. they had to um, see their lives taken away from them for six years and maybe forever. The numbers globally for coronavirus, the number of people who die, its everyone is a tragedy, but the numbers are still, in absolute terms, very small. Our biggest danger is that the economic prospects of our kids and grandchildren are going to be wrecked by all this. Um, so I, th- I think to keep a sense of proportion, I don't think we're threatened with anything as bad as World War II, but... That generation, that everybody in Australia and in Britain, everybody in the 1930s, 1940s, they'd been through the Depression. Uh, They'd known bad times. We've never known bad times. We're going to have to learn how to live with bad times.
1: Well, Max, uh, that is a good point to end on. Uh, And even though the literature of Second World War bombing campaigns is extensive, uh, your book is a gripping human history. Max, as ever, it's great to have you on Between the Lines
2: lovely to talk to you tom all the very best down there
1: thanks so much sir max hastings he's author of several best-selling books on military history including most recently chastise the Dam busters story 1943 it's published by HarperCollins. well that's it for another week of between the lines it's always great having max hastings on the program isn't it now remember you can download the show wherever you get your podcasts or listen on the abc listen app this is tom switzer hope you can tune in again next week